This is Generation Justice. I'm Cecilia Frescas. And I'm Izzy Mustafas. Generation Justice is a multimedia movement to train youth to harness the power of media for social change. Tonight, we're taking you to the New Mexico Voices for Children Kids Count Conference. New Mexico Voices for Children is an organization that uses evidence-based advocacy to create sustainable change to improve the lives of children in New Mexico. The third annual Kids Count Conference is a gathering to talk about the state of youth and children in New Mexico. The theme for this year's conference was Child Well-Being, a Two-Generation Approach. During the ceremony, honoring children in New Mexico, there was a powerful keynote speech by Reverend William Barber. He spoke about the importance of young people and the need to stand up and take action. Tonight, we'll hear the Reverend's incredible speech on the importance of youth, equality, poverty, and the movement towards a moral America. We have an amazing show ahead of us, paired with a great community calendar and some motivating music, starting with a song called The People by Common. This is Street Radio for Unsung Hero. Riding in the Rego, trying to stay legal. My daughter found Nemo, I found the new Primo. Yeah, you know how we do. We do it for the people and the struggle of the brothers and the folks. The lovers of the dope. Reverend Dr. William Barber, president of the North Carolina NAACP chapter, well-known leader of the Forward Together Moral Movement and leader of North Carolina's Moral Mondays, has led the fight for voter rights, healthcare reform, labor and worker rights, protection of immigrant rights, and education equality in his state. Reverend Barber is also the pastor of Greenleaf Christian Church with over 400 members. The Reverend, a man who leads by faith, came to New Mexico's Voices for Children event and graced everyone with a passionate speech. Here is Dr. Reverend William Barber. Today I want to talk a little bit about for the children, our work is not done yet. In some ways, we are continuing this experiment called America, and there are some, I'm afraid, who would actually want to go backwards rather than forwards. There's a scripture that says, be not weary in well-doing, for you will reap if you faint not. Our work is not done. On December 10th, 1967, Dr. King said, I'm worried about America. He says, I'm worried about America, but the title of the sermon was The Meaning of Hope, because he knew, like Walter Brueggemann, that hope does not just come by some false gladness. It actually, real hope has to come up out of the pain of struggle. And Dr. King preached it during the season of Advent, five months before he was killed, it was after he had fought and seen the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the March on Washington. It was after all of this. And many people were telling Dr. King, you've done enough. Anybody would be glad to have that kind of resume, that you actually helped America pass the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Prep from preachers, from preachers to presidents, his own staff, they were telling him, you've done enough. And Dr. King said, but I'm worried about America. America, a country founded on the principles created equal by God, still wrestling with whether or not the color of skin determines the content of character. 
He said, I'm worried about a nation sick with militarism. I'm worried about a nation where at that time the gross national product was $800 billion and, sti and it still had 50 million poor people within his borders. Something was wrong, Dr. King went on to say, because we still have two Americas. Now one is beautiful for situation. In this America, millions of people have the milk of prosperity and the honey of equality flowing before them at all times. But there's another America. This other America has a daily ugliness about it. Children aren't receiving opportunity for education. People who want to work can't find jobs. The sick don't have health care. And in that America, the daily ugliness transforms the buoyancy of hope into the fatigue of despair. He then said, because there is something wrong, our work is not done yet. We must be even more committed and more serious and not waste time. In this sermon was when he announced his plans for the Poor People's March. He didn't live to see it through, but he knew that he was not finished and neither was the movement. I must say to you today that the other America is still real. Otto Swammer, an MIT professor that I had some time to study under, says there is something wrong in America if there is a blind spot in America's economic theory today is called consciousness. Our refusal to believe in an economic theory that looks and sees that we are all integrated and that we really do need each other. Right now, this very noonday hour, America is the richest nation on earth, and we have more poor people than at any other time in our country's history, the best of times and the worst of times. Our poverty numbers, especially child poverty, are far higher than any other advanced Western democracy. We've also become the least economically mobile. You're born poor, you're more apt to stay that way than in any other advanced country in the world. And of course, if you're born rich, you're more likely to stay that way. That's not class warfare, that's simply the truth. The poverty center back home where I'm from notes that the South and the Southwest is the native home of American poverty where we have more poor people and more political leaders that are utterly untroubled by it than the rest of the land. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 90, over 90% of the persons representing the poorest counties and the poorest areas in this country are extreme Tea Party types who are the most adverse to the very things that would help their constituents and somehow They've been able to get away with the lie. They've been able to, to be led and paid for by a wealthy oligarchy and fool the public to think that somehow it's not their poli the policies, but other people of a different color, brown or black, that are really the cause of their situation. 10 of the country's poorest 12 states are southern and southwest. Joseph Sticklitz wrote a book called The Cost of Inequality. 
you know, we often talk about a lot of times in these discussions, people say, well, how much will it cost to raise the minimum wage? How much will it cost to fully fund education? He flipped the question over and said, let me tell you what the cost the price of inequality is how much it's costing us. And he said, he notes in that book, he says that in America, the share of national income going to the top 0.01%, that's 16,000 families, has risen from just over 1% in 1980 to almost 5%, even bigger than the top 0.01% got during the Gilded Age. Warren Buffett, himself a member of the super rich who has recognized the cost of this inequality, took to the pages of the New York Times in the fall of 2012 to note that the 400 wealthiest Americans took home an hourly wage of $97,000 an hour. And that rate has more than doubled since 1992. And then Joseph, this Nobel Peace Prize economist, notes that inequality breeds more inequality in educational opportunity. That in turn translates into a waste of human talent, that's the cause, a less educated workforce, that's the cause, slower economic growth, that's the cause, and even greater income equality, that's the cause. In other words, it costs us more not to address poverty than it does to address it. We're serious about children. The three great challenges we must deal with are poverty, educational inequality, and violence. He goes on to say, in that same piece, he notes that there is a book, a study that was done by the Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health, and it found that poverty, low levels of education, poor social support, contribute about as many deaths in the U.S. as heart attack, stroke, and lung cancer. When they finished doing their analysis, the investigators found that 240,000 deaths in the United States occurred in the year 2000 were attributable to low levels of education. 176,000 were contributed to racial segregation. 162,000 low social support, 133,000 to individual level poverty, and 39,000 to area level poverty. In 2013, according to one study bringing it home to New Mexico, working families headed by racial ethnic minorities were twice as likely to be poor or low income compared with non-Hispanic whites a gap that has increased since the onset of the Great Recession. In other words, everybody has not recovered from the Great Recession because the Great Recession for some community did not start in 2007. It has been going on ever since the ending of the shortest war we've ever fought, and that's the war on poverty in the 1960s. It goes on to say here in this state, as a majority minority state, 60% of the adults here and 74% of our children are racially ethnic minorities. New Mexico, therefore, can be considered a bellwether of the nation's impending demographic. That's why I really wish the presidential campaign started in the South and the Southwest. Because if you don't get the South and the Southwest together, you can't fix the rest of America. Yo, that's real tough. Mexico and a testament to why we need to stand up against the system that obviously wasn't created to fight the inequalities that we face in this country. 
Reverend Barber is absolutely right. We cannot aspire to change the inequalities in this country, nor can we create a just society for all if we don't unite as communities of color. We cannot separate the South and the Southwest. We must unite, strategize, and fight together. Thanks for that insight, Ceci. All right, now we're on to our next song for tonight's show. Here is Public Enemy with Fight the Power. And that was Fight the Power by Public Enemy. All right. Now we're going to listen to some more of Reverend William Barber's speech at the New Mexico Voices for Children Kids Count Conference. New Mexico is also a high poverty state. Nationally, some 14 million of the 24 million children who live in low-income working families belong to racial and ethnic minorities. This bodes poorly for the nation's future as children who grow up in low-income families. The greatest threat to access to public education is high-poverty, resegregated schools. 52% of public elementary schools in Louisiana, New Mexico, and the District of Columbia and California are considered high poverty. High poverty schools also have a larger percentage of students with limited English proficiency, lower average scores. We know from various studies the report called School Segregation is Back, and this is something that ought to trouble all of us. 61 years after Brown versus Board of Education, schools today are segregating faster than they were in the 1960s. And this report found that resegregation has happened gradually. And the challenge of it is, and sometimes we forget the history, it was never that in order for a black or Latino or Native American child to learn, they had to sit beside someone who was white. That wasn't the argument. The argument was if you segregate the bodies, you will also segregate the budgets and the books and the teachers and the, and the curriculums. That's the point. And there would be no political push because politicians would believe since these schools are segregated and they're not in my district, I don't have to be concerned about them. And so now, studies all over the place are saying the progress achieved is now gone. Because after Brown, the federal government began to force southern states and others to desegregate, and it rose from nearly zero to nearly 44% in 1988. But then Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, began part of his political campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And you have to understand that because he was operating on what's called the New Southern Strategy. And the New Southern Strategy was developed by Kevin Phillips for Richard Nixon. And here's how it went. Don't say the N-word. That's why the president said that the other day. You know, in the New Southern Strategy, you don't use the N-word. Hmm, smarter than you don't do that. You don't say anything ugly. Kevin Phillips said, and Lee Atwater later on exposed it, he said, you come up with new code words like tax cuts and forced busing and law and order and states' rights and workers' rights. And Lee Atwater said, you never sound racist. It's benign. 
in its language. But you promote programs that in their impact are going to hurt black and brown children and will make southern whites think that their problems are rooted in the uplift of black and brown people. And then you add to that wicked brew white victimization. And you begin to suggest that all of the entitlement programs that benefited people in the 40s and 50s now are somehow bad. And Reagan played on that. That's why he had his campaign start in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where Swanner, Chain, and Goodman were killed. You didn't have to say what he was going to do. The picture said, spoke a thousand words, like a flag flying on top of a capital in some state called South Carolina. And now in the South and Southwest, the trend has been resegregation. The percentage of black students in majority white schools was 23.2%. That's lower than it was in 1968. And then Latinos have another challenge, the largest minority group in the United States. Latino children are now the most resegregated. History is a little different because the history, according to this report, of school segregation for Latinos is different. While southern states had laws keeping black children out of white schools, the mandates didn't necessarily apply to Latinos. Still, Latinos in Texas and in the Southwest were often made to attend separate schools or even classrooms known as Mexican rooms because it was assumed the children didn't have the aptitude of their white counterpart. And for years, it was difficult to track segregation of Latino children because their school enrollment numbers weren't even counted in many areas until 1968, which is 14 years after Brown. And it wasn't until 1973 that the Supreme Court decided that Latinos had the same rights to attend integrated schools as black. And that puts us at 19 years after Brown. Our work is not done yet. And when you add to this mix of poverty, inequity, and educational inequity, and then you add to that that our criminalization of black and brown and poor young people that um, James Cone calls the new lynching tree. As I know this is tough language. But James Cone, a scholar, says when you look at the criminal justice system today and what it's doing to black and brown and poor white children, it's a new lynching tree. It's a way of tying a rope around the hope and the aspirations of young people and strangling it out of them through a system of incarceration. And what's so sad about this? We could fix it. It doesn't have to be this way. If we started with an first of all, with an attitude toward all of our children that sounds something like this, a poet wrote it, fleecy locks and dark black or brown complexion cannot alter nature's claim. Skin color may differ, but perfection dwells in black and brown and white just the same. Were I as tall to reach the pole or could grasp the ocean with a span, I must be measured by my soul for the mind is the standard of the man or the woman. But instead, what we see happening with all of this is violence. I said, I said there were three things, right? Education, inequality, economic inequality, and violence, if you're serious about children. But by violence here, I'm not talking about the shooting of the gun. Mm -mm. Not talking about that. I'm talking about the violence that Coretta Scott King talked about when she said after her husband was shot and killed, and someone said, Ms. King, how do you feel about violence? She said, well... Violence is deeper than simply being assassinated with a bullet. She said violence, she said poverty can produce a deadly kind of violence. She said, I remind you that starving a child is violence. 
Suppressing a culture is violence. Neglecting school children is violence. Discrimination against a working person is violent. Ghetto housing is violent. Ignoring medical needs is violent. Contempt for equality is violent. And then she said, even a lack of willpower to help humanity is a sick and sinister form of violence. And the problem, my friends, in our culture today is we get all caught up in the sensational forms of violence and we miss the slow death that has happened. Now, I know some of you may be saying, Barbara, we've been here all day and we wanted you to just inspire us. Well, I stop by to tell you that the kind of inspiration that grows out of the black church and that grows out of my Pentecostal background does not come by denying pain. It comes by owning the pain. And so I did not lay out this assessment for you to be morbid or to be depressed. I laid it out for you to get mad and determined. That's why I laid it out. I came in the spirit of those who came before us, who understood that the challenges around us is a sign of why you're still alive. The challenges around us is the sign of why God let you get up this morning. The challenges around us are why you have to be in this conference. And that in this conference, not only must you study the stats and look at, do the analysis, but you must always be working to plan a movement to fight back. Because anytime you have a movement in this country that is, that is drunk on this Tea Party tea, and they are trying to teach the rest of the nation that the way to a great America is to deny education, deny health care, deny living wages, deny unemployment, deny LGBT rights, deny women's rights, give more tax cuts to the wealthy, and deny people the right to vote, and then after you've done all of that, make sure that people can get a gun easier than they can vote. If we can't beat that agenda something is wrong with us because we have to raise stand up. We must fight back. Our work is not done. Frederick Douglass said one time, those who profess to favor freedom and yet dis dis depreciate agitation are like people who want crops without plowing the ground. You want rain without the thunder and the lightning. You want the ocean without the roar of its way. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. Henry David Thoreau was asked one time, will you repent for your challenge to America and for your acts of civil disobedience? And Henry David Thoreau said, if I repent of anything, it's my good behavior and I'm trying to figure out what demon possessed me to be quiet so long. Langston Hughes, long before the civil rights movement began, and he was a good friend of Dr. King, started prophesying in his poetry. And he said, he looked at all of the challenges of America, and he said, oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet, and yet must be the land where every man is free, the land that is mine, the poor man's Indians, Negro me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain. We must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain from those who live like leeches on the people's lives. We must take back our land again. Oh, America, oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. That 
must be our charge. We are in a movement now. Every action must have an equal opposite reaction. We're in a movement where we must fight back. We cannot compromise with extremists. We must fight extremism. And we can't get into a place of settling for a little bit. You know, during the Montgomery movement, I don't know if how many of you know this, there were some that wanted Dr. King to fight for simply a kinder and gentler form of segregation. And E.D., who was an old World War II civil rights man, went to Dr. King and said, let me tell you something. We don't want a kinder, gentler segregation. We want the end of segregation. And there must rise up in this time a people that are just not content with a little bit less inequality. But we want to fight for the end of inequality and for every child to have everything. Yes, to all of that. We live in a violent society, a violent society that is perpetrated and maintained by the violent laws that are in place. A society that hurts us at the deepest levels possible. One that tells us that as youth of color, we are not smart enough, strong enough, or valuable enough. But that's exactly where we must always raise our voices, and along with Reverend and others, we must speak up about the inequalities we face. I definitely hear the passion of Reverend Barber when talking about the intersections of education, poverty, and race. Like he said, we need to be mad and determined to combat all forms of inequality. Now, after that very powerful piece, we are going to listen to Stay With, Stay With You by John Legend. been together for a while now we're growing stronger every day now it feels so good and there is no doubt i will stay with you as each morning brings the sunrise and the flowers bloom in springtime on my and that was stay with you by john legend and now here's the last part to Reverend William Barber's inspiring speech at the New Mexico Voices for Children Kids Count Conference. We must finally build a moral movement that puts a face on the pain that is caused by these extremist policies. Listen, indigenously led, state-based, state government-focused, Deeply moral, deeply constitutional, anti-racist, anti-poverty, pro-justice, pro-labor, transformative fusion movements. We, my brothers and sisters, are in the embryonic stages of a third reconstruction. That's what all this movement, that's why you're seeing all this breaking out. All these things happening, even with the Supreme Court that we don't necessarily expect. Black Lives Matter, Fight for 15, Voices for Children, Moral Monday. There's something happening. There's a birthing happening. And in this moment, we are being actually given the sign that this is really the time to fight. We need a moral constitutional movement. We need a movement committed to civil disobedience. You're not going to do everything with Texas now. You're not going to change everything with an email and a nice meeting. Because we've got to shift that tension span of the country and of the state. We need a movement that makes your state a national issue. Not that waits for something national to happen to fix New Mexico, but make New Mexico a national issue. 
And we need a movement where we stay together. For instance, I'm telling all my LGBT friends, just because that we won marriage equality, which we stood up for in the NAACP in the Supreme Court the other day, don't you get out of the movement now. We still have a fight for voting rights. And we must have a movement in this moment, because they're craving to do it, where the youth are not in a side room, but at the front of the movement together with us. You let 20 or 30 state capitals where they are holding up educational funding. You let a thousand young people start going in with other people and clergy getting arrested and sitting down and see don't we change the narrative and the dynamic in this country. I heard a business leader, a multimillionaire at Georgetown look at the president and say, Mr. President, all of the things you want to talk about with regards to economics, he said, every other conversation is tertiary until we get our moral argument straight and we see one another as brothers and sisters. And when we do that, it will drive, I don't call them the right, it will drive the extremists mad. I know it will. That happened on Meet the Press when Lindsey Graham got up. Did you hear? And they asked him, how did you think about the president's speech? He said, well, he's a good singer, good speaker, but he lost me when he started comparing grace and public policy. And I know why it lost him. It lost him because he doesn't have an argument for it. Because there's no way he can say, I'm for taking health care, I'm for cutting public education, I'm for giving tax cuts to the wealthy and, taking it and, and raising it on the working poor, but it's the moral thing to do. We must have a movement that is so linguistically powerful that it challenges the very heart of extremism. And right now, I believe we're called to this deeply moral constitutional vision of society. We must fight for a society where the common good, once again, is our focus. Our job is to unpack the truth about these extreme policies and how they impact all of us. Our job is to engage in the risky business of debate and differing with the powerful forces of our day. You are not allowed to be quiet in the face of wrong and injustice, and you cannot let extremism have absolute control of the mic. In every age, there must be a dissenting voice. That's the only hope for our democracy. In every age, somebody like Walter Wink says, must name the powers. And we are not allowed to check out just because a fox has a news station and has the microphone to pay for it. No! Howard Thurman, the great mystic and chaplain at Boston University, said, this is the question in every age. Where will you stand in regards to the disinherited? That's the question. We don't need to examine policy. Is it left or is it right? That locks people out. Is it liberal or conservative? The question is, is it constitutionally consistent? Is it morally defensible, and is it economically insane? And you got some good stuff in your constitution. I mean, this one in New Mexico says, a uniform system of free public schools sufficient for the education of and open to all children of school age in the state shall be established and maintained. That means anything that's less than that is unconstitutional, is immoral, and is economically insane. I love it when these extremists talk about we want to read the Constitution. Really? You really want to read the Constitution when the preamble says the goal of this country is to establish justice, to provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare. You really want to read the Constitution? I would be glad to oblige you. 
Because any policy that does not establish justice for all people is unconstitutional. We must challenge this so-called religious right that's so wrong. They're now raising all this saying about same-sex marriage don't understand. We have a constitution of equal protection. But what bothers me more is there are only about five scriptures for it at the most in the Bible that even talk about the issues they're talking about. And all of them, most of them, they misinterpret and none of them trump this scripture. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. But the other problem I have with it is I want to have the faith discussion in the public square because the Bible has 2,000 scriptures in it that talks about how you treat the poor, how you treat children, how you treat those on the margin. And if you cut all of them out, you would in fact have no Bible. The Bible actually says in Isaiah 10, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor and the children of their rights. Let's have a conversation about the rights of the poor and the rights of children and the rights of the disenfranchised. But not only that, we have to know what we're fighting for. We can't just be against. So this moral agenda says, number one, we must fight, if we're concerned about children, to secure pro-labor, anti-poverty policies that ensure economic sustainability by fighting for full employment, living wages, the alleviation of disparate unemployment, a green economy, labor rights, affordable housing, targeted empowerment zones, strong safety nets for the poor, fair policies for immigrants, and infrastructure development and fair tax reform that lifts up the poor and the working poor. Number two, we must have a moral agenda and we must fight for it that says we want educational equality by ensuring that every child receives a high-quality, well-funded, constitutional, diverse public education, as well as access to community colleges and universities. We, we know what works. You want our school system to work, whether it's in New Mexico or North Carolina, stop resegregation and promote diversity. Provide equity and funding for all schools. Provide and fund high-quality teachers in smaller classrooms. Provide high-quality leadership teams. Provide funding for high-quality facilities and support staff. Focus on math, science, reading, and history. Support parental and community involvement and address the unjust and disproportionate suspension of black, brown, and poor children, and we can turn our schools around. Number three, you care about children? We have to fight for health care for all, ensuring access to the Affordable Care Act, Medicare, and Medicaid. You care about children? You must fight for fairness in the criminal justice system by addressing the continuing inequalities in the system as it relates to black, brown, and poor white people. If you care about children, you must protect and expand voting rights, women's rights, LGBT rights, labor rights, immigrant rights, and you must demand in America at all times everywhere we will never surrender equal protection under the law for every American citizen. That's how you change this country. When we started Moral Monday, they laughed at us. Some of our educational friends in North Carolina said, Rambaba, we don't want to do all this marching, you know, because we can negotiate with them. And I said, okay, okay, but foxes don't change just because you give them a cookie. And so they went in to negotiate and the legislature lied to them and cut another billion dollars from public education. Then they went after teacher tenure. Then they took $10 million of public education money and give it to private school. But thank God, we weren't mad, we got together. We said it's not about Democrat or Republican, it's about what's right and what's wrong, what's constitutional. And so we began to come together 170 organizations. Because my argument to advocates is, why are we all fighting separate when they are fighting together?
Why are, the, why are the health people over here and the education people over here and the economic people over here when in your legislature the people voting against all of you are the same people? When you raise this moral critique, it has power. No great movement in this country ever was successful without a deep moral center. The movement against slavery, the movement against Jim Crow, the movement to get women the right to vote, the movement for social security, the movement to integrate the armed services, the movement to, for the Brown versus Board of Education, the movement for the Voting Rights Act, the movement for the Civil Rights Act, the movement for the Fair Housing Law, they all had to have a deep moral center. So I came to tell you, let's stand up together. Let's stand up together and let's fight together. Out in the wild, when elephants feel an attack coming, they put all the children in the center of the circle. And the elephants say, in order to get to the children, you gotta come through us. I want to suggest we can't allow elephants in the wild to have more sense than us. When young people came together 50 years ago, they changed this country. The Pueblo people are always trying to teach us about the interconnectedness, the interconnectedness of nature and our society. Together is how we win. We ought to make our green song the key to this movement. Let's stay together. And as we stay together, not only must we stay together, we've got to move this conversation above the snake line. My son is an environmental physicist, and one day he said to me, Daddy, if you ever get lost out in the woods somewhere, particularly in mountainous territory, I don't want you to walk out through the valley. He said, snakes live down low. If you're walking out you might get snake bit. He says, it's going to be hard, but climb up first. Because if you can get high enough in the mountains, you get to a place called the snake line. If you can get high enough above the snake line, snakes can't live at high altitude. They die. They asphyxiate. And at least if you climb out on the high plane, you won't have to worry about the snakes. Well, there's some mighty low stuff going on in America right now. Not making sure that every child has what they need is mighty low. Keeping health care from people is mighty low. Keeping people in poverty is mighty low. Trying to pass laws that would end labor rights in New Mexico is mighty low. That's, but that's where the snakes live. But our job from Moral Monday to Voices for Children is to make our way to higher ground. We've got to take this nation and this state and the debate to higher ground. What's higher ground? Higher ground is one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's higher ground. Higher ground is where every child is educated. Higher ground is where the sick receive health care. Higher ground is where the poor are lifted and not pushed down. Higher ground is where voting rights are secure. Higher ground is where we are all God's children and we're all seen as special and loved and important. Higher ground is where the powerful seek to serve and not merely to be served. And our work is not done until we take this nation, until we take this state to higher ground. There's an old song that says, Lord, lift us up and plant our feet on higher ground. I charge you today to take this state from the low grounds to the higher ground because your work is not finished yet.
And that was it for Reverend William Barber's powerful speech. I walk away from his speech hoping that it moved everyone like it moved me. I take his words to heart and hope that we can mobilize together to create a better society for all people, regardless of sex, gender, income, race, or citizenship status. Thank you to Reverend William Barber for his important words that inspire action. When listening to him speak, I kept thinking of the Asada Shakur quote when she says, It is our duty to fight for freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. We are now going to listen to a song by Tef Poe, a rapper from Ferguson, Missouri. The song is called Prince of his new album, War Machine 3. Daily I grind, most of my n****s hate me for it They proud that I'm working, I hate the fact that they get ignored Demons plotting on me, Pico told me to stop it Yeah, I'm new to this moment, but I know I'm a prophet They upgrading my charges, trying to stop us for real This is getting real and I don't know how to feel My little brother is dub, I cannot let him crash I stay true to the moment, I do not wear a mask My posse too emotional and all of them are artists You go to Palestine and you really become a target Now that I'm in this genre, I'm about to we have reached the point in our program where we share some amazing upcoming events that are happening right here in our community. To share these amazing events with you, here are our wonderful calendar hosts, Nicole Beatty and Josh Haynes. Thank you for joining us on this fine, fabulous Sunday. It is now time for Community Calendar. I'm your calendar host, Nicole Beatty. And I'm your other calendar host, Josh Haynes. We have events in store that is worthy of penciling in, so grab your planners. It's true, my soulful listeners. In fact, Curanderismo traditional health events are happening throughout the better half of this week. La Placita Institute is hosting the 2015 Annual Mexican Traditional Healing Festival tomorrow, Monday, July 20th. The festival will be from 3 p.m. to 8 p.m., and there will be a variety of traditional healing services offered, such as... American massage acupuncture. Limpias, spiritual cleansings, and consultas de hierbas, herbal consultations. They are available to all and are offered by the Conandera Spiritual Healers from Mexico. This is a family-friendly event, so food and child care will be provided. For more information or to ask about how your organization can get involved, call 505-508-508. 1802 or send an email to gmail.com. If you can't make it to the La Placita's Healing Festival, the National Hispanic Culture Center along with the UNM's Women's Resource Center and Tonzananin Tra- Traditional Healing are holding a traditional health fair. Literally the very next day, Tuesday, July 21st. The fair will be held at the National Hispanic Cultural Center from 3 p.m. to 8 p.m., and healers from Mexico and the Southwest will be doing treatments throughout. This fair is held alongside the Curanderismo class being taught at UNM called Traditional Medicine Without Borders. You can learn more about the event and the class by going onto Facebook and searching Curanderismo class at UNM. And if you happen to miss today's fair, you're in luck because another traditional health fair will be held the next day. Yep, it's essentially the same as Tuesday's fair. Only, it will take place Wednesday, July 22nd, from 12 to 4 p.m. on UNM's main campus at the Student Union Building. Awesome. Plenty of opportunities to learn about cursanderismo and traditional health. Speaking on cultural and traditional happenings, 
Mujeres Activas en Letras y Cambo Social, commonly known as MALCS, M-A-L-C-S, Women Active in Letters and Social Change, is an all-volunteer national organization of Chicana, Afro-Asian, Latina, indigenous women, trans, and gender non-conforming people that strives to represent communities as well as institutions of higher learning. The annual Malk Summer Institute features research and scholarly panels, creative papers, performances, workshops, and social activities that honor our whole intersectional selves and a supportive space. This will take place July 29th through August 1st in the UNM Student Union Building. Registration is online at institute.malcs.org. And for more information, you can contact the conference committee at 505-277-5020. Moving on to something for the wee ones commonly known as kids. The ABQ Kids Rock Festival will be held at the Civic Plaza. On Saturday, August 1st, from 3 to 7 p.m., the festival is dedicated to kids and their families. We'll there will be games, jumps, explore food, face painting, vendors, and so much more. So bring the kids. And on that note, you should bring your fashion sense to the second annual show, second annual fashion show, Presented by Tender Love Community Center. I feel you, Nicole. The Tender Love Community Center will host a cultural diversity fashion show Saturday, July 25th at the African American Performing Arts Center, 3 to 5 p.m. That's right, Josh. Miss Native American USA April Yaza will also be a special guest and will be modeling a traditional dress made just for her by the tra- by the Tender Love Community Center. Hey, soul sister. There will be a preview of Border Town brought to you by the Mexican and La Cucaracha. Yes, my brother. This will be held at the National Hispanic Cultural Center, July 24th at 7 p.m. And right after, the audience members will have the opportunity to hear from the Gustavio, Ariano, and Lalo Alcatraz on what it's like to be a part of the handful of Latino writers in Hollywood. Josh, my brother, you should bring your appetite to the Peruvian buffet that will be July 29th from 2 to 7 p.m. I will always come to prepare to eat. This sixth annual Peruvian Independence Day party is held to celebrate the 194th birthday of Peru. As tradition has it, there will be a great Peruvian buffet held at Albuquerque's Balloon Museum. There will be live music performed by Jackie Zamora and Haryana Criilla, in addition to South American rhythms. Our last event is Water Smart Gardening Class. This class will optimize your garden output and minimize your water use. That's right. You'll be working with experts at Desert Oasis, where you will learn to make the most of your urban farm. This will take place on July 23rd from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. at the Desert Oasis Teaching Garden. For more information, you can call 505-289-3042. And that wraps up our community calendar. I'm your calendar host, Nicole Beatty. And I'm Josh Haynes. Now back to Izzy and Cecilia. Thank you, Nicole and Josh, for that awesome community calendar. Well, we've come to the end of tonight's program. Thank you all for joining us this evening. We would like to thank the powerful Reverend William Barber. Your words inspire us to move to action and to unite. Also, a big thank you to New Mexico's Voices for Children for hosting another wonderful event and continuing to work for New Mexico's children and youth. We also want to give a big congrats to our wonderful calendar host, Nicole Beatty. At the Kids Count Conference, she was awarded the Amy Bill Spirit Award. Way to go, Nicole. 
And congrats to my host, co-host Izzy Mustafa, who was nominated for the Amiable Youth Spirit Award for his amazing community work. Great job, Izzy. Uh, thanks, Ceci. Thank you, Nicole Beatty and Josh Haynes for that spectacular calendar. And thank you to our editor and engineer this evening, Joshua Horton. Tonight's show was produced with by Joshua Horton with production assistance by Cristina Rodriguez, George Luna Peña, Melissa Harris, Camaria Umi, and Roberta Rael. And last but certainly not least, much love to all of our youth media makers here at Generation Justice. We couldn't do what we do without you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, Generation Justice. Org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and much, much more. Also, our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Conalma Foundation, and, of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Cecilia Frescas. And I'm Izzy Mustafa. Coming up next on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned. See you next Sunday at 7 o'clock. We will leave you now with some more amazing music. One love, y'all.